Hey, Garth, how are you today? I'm very good, Marge. How are you? I'm great. I've just been looking forward to this interview, well, ever since you agreed to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty, so let's see here. Um, my audience may or may not have been around for your earlier interview a few years back. So why don't you ground yourself for the folks that are listening and tell them who you are what you do. Okay, my name is Garth Stein. Um, I, I'm a Seattleite. I grew up here, up, uh, up in Shoreline. I went to Shorewood High School, go Thunderbirds. Uh-huh. And then uh, went to New York for a long time to, to try my, my ways there. I uh, ended up meeting my wonderful wife and having a couple of kids there. And then we moved back to Seattle in 2001. And I've been here in the literary community um, writing books ever since. Um, if anybody knows a book I've written, it would probably be The Art of Racing in the Rain, which was my third novel. came out a long time ago in t- 2008. And uh, it's a book that is um, narrated by a dog who mm-hmm. tells the story mm-hmm. of his family's life. And at the time I wrote it, it was a little bit controversial, I have to say. I sent it to my agent in New York, and he promptly told me no one will read a book narrated by a dog. So right. I fired him and <laughs> found a new agent and, uh, who believed in me. And that book went on to live for over three years on the New York Times bestseller list proving that people will read a book narrated by a dog. Um, And so it became very successful. I wrote a novel after that, A Sudden Light, uh, my follow-up, and I'm working on a new novel now. But in the meantime, I've been spending my creative energies working on a graphic novel um, in a three-part series uh, called The Cloven. And um, the first uh, book came out uh, last summer, and we're working hard on the second installment, and the third will be coming up in a couple of years, a couple of years I guess, for the third one. Right. I don't know. Right, right, right. Well, okay, yes. So I am uh, this, this year and probably next year, I've like decided to have a 100% focus on fiction. Um, you know, in the past, it was always, I leaned a little heavy towards nonfiction, which is fine, but... Um, What's been really interesting about this decision that I made is that I also realized that when I did touch on fiction before, it was usually within a certain, like, the similar genre. And now I'm finding, like, I've got an author, Jessica Brody, who's going to join me um, in about a month with a middle grade book. And then you have this graphic novel, which I will admit, I don't think I've ever read a graphic novel before. Hmm. Well, that's, you know, that's an, that's an interesting observation, and many people don't feel that they have, and yet maybe they have. Um, you know, graphic novel is, a, is, is kind of a, it's almost a faux genre, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's, they're comic books, but it's a long-form comic book. It's not like a floppy like we used to get back in the day. You know, you go to the 7-Eleven and buy your Superman for 25 cents. Right, um, right. I did read those, Casper the Ghost. Sure. And things like that, yes. But they sure. feel different. It is. It's very different. And then, you know, at a certain point, uh, there was a genre, you know, p- people started trying out their ways, uh, their art form in, in longer form. And I, I believe if you wanted to go into the history of it, uh, someone may disagree with this, but, you know, the phrase graphic novel, I believe, was coined for Art Spiegelman, whose book series, uh, Mouse, M-A-U-S, Mm-hmm. Um, was uh, very uh, significant and important, and it was um, about uh, Nazis. In, uh, it's a graphic novel about Nazis. And 
Nazis uh, in this graphic novel are rats and the, the Jews are mice. And there's a whole thing, and it's this whole metaphorical play on the Holocaust um, as a cartoon. And when they were publishing it, the publishers didn't know how to get across to people that this isn't, there's no Man of Steel in this, there's, you know, there's, there's no, um, you know, sh- light of a bat that shines on a cloud. This is like serious stuff, mm-hmm. but it's being told with a visual form that really lends itself, that, that has, it brings a lot, you know, the, the visual yes. aspect of it brings a lot to the text. And so uh, somebody said, that's not a comic book, it's a graphic novel. And there have been oh. some that have been really popular over the years. Um, uh, Persepolis was one very big a few years ago. Um, there's one called Epileptic um, that was really quite powerful. Well, and I hear about them. Words. I hear about them sometimes. It's just not, and, and I actually am going to have to ask you to help me a little bit because, you know, I've got I've got a wide age range when it comes to people who will walk up to me and start chatting at me about the show. So um, for for I feel I feel like I'm a little not old to be reading a graphic novel. That's not what I'm trying to say. I feel like I'm underskilled because of my age demographic. There were a couple of pages where I'm sitting there going, "Oh no, wait, am I supposed to read left to right, up to down, and then move over, or do I go?" And one of them, you go straight across left to right, both pages. I'm almost certain, but I'm sitting here yeah. trying to figure it out. And I was laughing. I, it was one of those things like when you're on the computer and your 13 year old just rolls their eyes and goes boom, 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 and they're like, "Like that, mom?" <laughs> you know? Right, right. Well, it is true that the people who are native, like anything else, people who are native to it just get it a little bit quicker and easier. Um, it's the same thing. Uh, you may notice that your children with an iPad are way more adept at it than, than your, um, your parents, for instance, because yeah. it's just not intuitive to someone who's, never, uh, who's already been doing things for 50 or 60 years, whereas um, you know, a three-year-old can pick up an iPad and, and uh, just start touching it, and there makes it work. Right? Because they have no, they have no other pre-knowledge to block the intel they're taking in, and they just sort of flow with it faster. I think. Right. I, I, they, they have fewer boundaries, fewer preconceptions. Right. Yeah. So they're exactly. They're just going to figure it out. Yeah. yeah. Well, okay. So, so... Know, there, there is that aspect of it, but yeah. you know, the, the idea of what you're saying about the visual, you know, how do you read a comic book page? Um, that's something that you know I had to learn. Because I write traditional novels. I write the old school, you know, words on paper. And <laughs> to, to work with an illustrator, Matt Southworth, um, who's my partner and illustrator, um, has been fabulous because he's had to kind of teach me about how we read and how we look at things visually, how we use pictures to tell a narrative story. And I think that's really kind of a cool thing to mess with and to, to work with. Right. Um, and I, I did this once before. Years ago, I did a presentation with uh, a pretty famous now, then he wasn't as famous, sculptor in the Seattle area, Preston Singletary. Um, he's a Clinkett artist. Um, he has basically, I, I'm a Clinkett descent, descendant as well, Clinkett mm-hmm. Indians from southeastern Alaska. But Preston has come up with a new method of working using traditional Clinkett totems, but using glass. Um, to show them as opposed to wood. And it's got a whole new look um, on this sort of thing. And he and I did a presentation on the narrative um, aspects of visual art mm-hmm. versus the visual aspects of narrative art. And it was really quite interesting. And, and there's, a, there's a big crossover when you start, you know, working with it. You see it's not like, oh, there's... You know, we have bucket one, take a ball from bucket one and a ball from bucket two, and then you have it. No, no, no. 
all the balls are mixed up in one giant, you know, bathtub. And so it's a, it's a much more organic and, and graceful way of working than one might suspect. It's gorgeous. It's um, both pages make the one photo. This is not the fold out, which is four pages. This is just right. two. It's early on. It's after he's just escaped. We'll get into okay. the thing later. And at the top, you've got this gorgeous red, and there's these three images of him racing left to right. Right. And then on the left, I love this, you've got this purple It's image of him with the leaves are in black. It's almost like he's actually the void rather than the object. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a great question and um, discussion point. Um, I, I think that it, for, for me, it would it be helpful to, to understand the origins of the story itself. So at some point, many years ago, I was having lunch with another writer friend of mine, and we were kind of goofing on um, Twilight, right? You because, mean Twilight um, by Stephanie Meyer? Yes, of okay. course, because it was like, you know, <laughs> Twilight 8 was out or something. Right? And it just sold more books. And like, you know, in the first week, it sells, you know, 100 million books, and everyone yeah. else is walking around with a you know, a box in the back of their car saying, would anybody please take one of my books for free? <laughs> I sold 11 books. Yay, yay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I said to her, uh, to this friend of mine, I was like, what do you think is going to be the next? Because mo- vampires are clearly done. What, what's next? Right. Like, and we're like bouncing off each other. What, and then we kind of came up with this idea of what if there were like these weird mutants and, and they, they were kind of goat people, and they were really fast, but they could hide their feet so no one could tell. So they could kind of blend, but they kind of couldn't, you know, kind of like at the end of uh, the, uh, the what's the cartoon? Not, I was going to say the Impossibles, but it's the, the family cartoon with the little kid Dash, who's like super fast. Oh, the Incredibles. You know, the Incredibles, right, right. Yeah. He has to like blend. He has to act like he's a normal kid and not run too fast. So right. we thought, oh, that'd be funny, that'd be funny. So then I started to write it as a short story for a literary series event that I was doing at Hugo House in Seattle. Mm. And it kind of was this fun, kind of dark story about um, GMOs gone crazy. Now, this was before CRISPR was in the news and all that kind of stuff, all this Mm -hmm. DNA stuff that, that people can do. And I was like, what if you took that to an extreme and just, like, try to invent, like designer people with different elements of different animals and so forth like and so it became this this story and it was pretty successful i did it at a literary series read it at the group everyone loved it and i thought i think there's enough in there to make a novel out of it and so i started to write it as a novel and i and i finished a draft of it and i gave it to my wife to read she's my first reader always and she read it and she said um no she said, no, this is not your next book. And I was like, well, why not? And she's like, I just don't get it. She's like, I don't even get how their legs work. You know, they have different, you know, they have different leg joints. You know, they're not like human legs. And I was like, oh, I guess I didn't really visualize them too much. And she said, yeah, you need to visualize them more. Uh-huh. And I was like, well, image that you could see in like a comic book. And she's like, well, I'd, I'd probably buy it then. So I started uh-huh. to work. I've called up a friend of mine who's the publisher of Fanographics. And I said, um, how do I do this? And he said, you know what? We talked for quite a bit. And then he said, you know, you should meet this guy I know. He's an illustrator, and I think you guys would like each other. And so he introduced me to Matthew Southworth, who has done, he did Stumptown, the comic book series Stumptown, which was made into a TV show on ABC. Um, I think it got canceled last year. But he remained but, involved with it when it was when it moved to television, didn't he? 
Yeah, he did. He yeah, did. Yeah. And so he, he and I, and I said, Matt, what do I do? I want to tell this as a comic book. And he's like, he read the whole, the whole script, uh, the whole book. And he's like, well, this thing, we talk back and forth. And so we, what, he, what we arrived at was this. This is what our process is. Mm-hmm. Um, I write a script, like a screenplay, but it's for a graphic novel. So what does that mean? It means I don't really have to worry about cameras or any of that nonsense. I need to worry about what's going on in the scene, but write it as a scene with dialogue and the whole deal. And I deliberately overwrite it because I mm-hmm. know that we're going to, when you go to the actual graphic novel page, we're going to strip all of the words out of it because it's about the images. Mm-hmm. But I need to give Matt the words that are in my head so that he knows what to draw. Mm-hmm. So he gets the script, he reads through the script, and he, then he breaks it down and into scenes and says, I think this is this, and I think this is this, and here's what I think is important in this scene, and here's what's important in that scene. And this is why I have to, he has to say that, because the, as you said a minute ago, when you turn a page and open up a page in a book, your eye, if it's a, if it's a graphic novel, your eyes go somewhere. And it's up to the author and the illustrator to... Um, suggest with great uh, uh, enthusiasm the yeah. proper way to read the page. Do you read left page first, then right page? Do you read the whole page at once? Do you read all the way across both pages on the top and then go back and then go all the way across in the next line, etc.? And so this is really important when you turn in terms of developing the story because even though you may start in the upper left-hand corner, you can still see out of the corner of your eye the lower right-hand corner. So you're getting a little bit of a hint, even though you're kind of trained to start in a certain way by our culture. Right, right. right. So I had to learn all this kind of stuff and, and understand how that... So what happens is I give Matt the script, he goes through it and starts to break it down um, into two-page chunks, two-page openings, right? Like, mm-hmm. I think this would be here and I think this would be here. And then he gives that breakdown with just stick figures, maybe. Right. He gives that to me, and I look at it, and I say, well, that's all good, well and good, Matt, but you just spent, like, a page and a half on this one moment, and when I wrote that, I really only intended it to be, like, a quarter of a page. That's not supposed to be a big moment. So oh. you've given too much weight to it. So I want to take all the weight out of that, and I want you to put weight on this other thing. And then so we negotiate that. that that's our collab- <laughs> that's a, the first step of our collaboration right. is both of us understanding what we're trying to deliver on this page spread, right? Mm-hmm. So once we both agree what we're trying to do, then he can go in and start to flesh it out and say, here's what I think the mood should feel like, and here's what I think, you know, there are some scenes that are at night where only, the only light is coming from a barrel fire underneath, you know, the, right, the, right. Yep. the freeway down in I-5, for yeah. instance. Well, that's going to glow in this kind of eerie way. And, you know, we can only see what's within the pool of light. We can't see what's beyond. So we, we start working on moods. And then I have to, we have to go through it again for time. In this first book, there's a lot of backstory that takes place in oh, the yes. 1990s, oddly enough, on Vashon Island. <laughs> and with a whole time change between, like, segments. And so we had to have a way to visually show that, and we used color palettes to do that. Oh. So there's big, there'll be big color shifts 
from present to past that you may not even know. I didn't. You, no, I yeah. totally didn't catch it. It was the story itself where I would scratch my head and go, wait a minute, that's the guy, and he's letting the kids out of the truck. They're small, but now there's like all these cloven that are really big. Oh, right. that was the moment where I went, oh, they're bouncing around in time. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> Sorry, I'm a little slow. No, it's no, been an it's, adventure it's, reading the book. <laughs> well, it's, it's part of it, you know, hopefully the, the color gives you an indication that something is different. So there are ways to do So we go through like that, and then uh, we get to the point where we both agree on, on say, how the story is going to be laid out. And then Matt gets to work uh, doing the ink first. He does everything in black and white. Mm -hmm. And he and I discuss, discuss, discuss. And then when we set that, then I do the words. So then I, we do an overlay using tracing paper on his black and whites. Mm -hmm. And I start to rough out the dialogue that is now going to be on the page. See, because the dialogue that I've written is too much, usually. Right. It's, so I have to strip it down. And sometimes I don't need any dialogue at all. You mentioned that on that one, that spread that you were talking about. Yeah. We, at some point, we were stripping out so many words that we got to that spread to, to do the color. And I said, you know what, Matt? I don't think this, I think the art tells the whole story. I don't think we need any words at all. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. And he laughed. And he said, you know, Garth, I, I usually agree with you, but I think we do need some words on this page. <laughs> so... Sometimes I think, I'm more willing to give up words than he is. Right, right. Well, so um, I'm just, it's, it's been hard for me when I've glanced at them. My kids would like just, you know, shovel them down like a bowl of ice cream. But this book is mm, pretty darn close to a little bit smaller than a magazine size. And I think I've really appreciated your decision to go with this size. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and when you consider that the, the Matt works on basically, you know, uh, desk-sized piece of paper, <laughs> um, yeah, there's a lot of information in there. And, and it is important to make sure, you know, there are some pieces that can be told much more uh, simply. Um, I'm trying to think. I did a, a piece, I did an interview with a guy who was from Australia um, I'm trying to find his book here on my bookshelf. Um, but his are much more kind of woodblockish, you know, fewer details in the mm -hmm. shadows and so forth. And so that kind of a book can ab absolutely be sort of squeezed down, you know, compressed a little bit because you're not the the visuals and the details are not as um, important necessarily. Right, but here you guys really weighted the visuals a lot as as yeah. giving them responsibility for telling the story. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and we, we working with Fantagraphics, our publisher, we all agreed on the, the... I mean, I think Matt wanted to go to a bigger format than what we have, <laughs> but, but they, that was voted down. But, no, I think but, this is brilliant. Bigger would have made it more like a coffee table book or something, and I think yeah. less people can find a place for that in their physical lives. This is going to fit in your bookshelf, no problem. The, um, the colors are... I love the colors. They're, what is it? Basically... There's a slight mutedness to every single color you use. So even though they're super bright, there's nothing that's like um, fluorescent or, or, or something. They're all, there's something soft about them. Am I reading that right or is that just you my impression? You are absolutely reading that right. Very good reading, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, because um, um, Matt wanted it to have a look of, he didn't want it, we didn't want it to look, when we said, what do we want the look of this thing to be? We didn't want it to feel high tech. 
We wanted it because the, the cloven are not high tech. So you understand this. Mm-hmm. The, the idea of the cloven, the story, um, and this is why talking about all this form is fine, but if you kind of don't know the context of the story, it makes it a little bit maybe disembodied. No, I was going to say, let's, I was going to dive into that next. So go ahead. Do you want to uh, just okay. actually do that? So let's tell people what the book's about. Yeah, it's, um, okay. it's the story of a, of a, a young man, Tuck is his nickname. Um, James Tucker is his name. And he's basically trying to find his identity. So it's a universal story, right? Mm -hmm. But it's got a monster aspect to it. So it's a universal Frankenstein story. Okay, but here's the setup of it. Um, Back in the early 90s, um, when things first started to come to light about, um, you know, how we could modify the human genome, Mm -hmm. um, there were you know, there were rules put in place, and this was, you know, back in the days of, uh, geez, Bill Clinton, I guess, was, was, was president when we were going through, no, yeah, I guess it was. Yeah, 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 yeah. The, the, <laughs> remember, remember we had um, the, what was it, WTO in Seattle, yeah. and Bill Clinton came and spoke, I think, on the tarmac about how, well, GMOs are great, wonderful, going to save the world. And then there was all the protests around that. So, like, yeah, that was right. definitely a hot moment when it came to the discussion of do we, do we not, and what will happen. Right. And so at that time, the U.S. government pledged to um, – they didn't outlaw experimentation with the human genome. Mm-hmm. So you can experiment with animals all you want, anywhere you want. But the human is a little bit different. People start getting a little freaked out about that. Mm-hmm. And so 33 countries right now have a, a moratorium against um, uh, scientific um, experimentation with the human genome. The United States is not one of those countries. We, it's, it's legal to do it here, but the, the, the government won't fund it. And the other mm-hmm. thing is that there are no way, there's no way to get, a, to get stem cells. In order to do this sort of experimentation, you need stem cells. And so they put a moratorium on stem cells. And so only an initial round of stem cells were allowed to be used. Hmm? Uh, I remember that being talked about, the whole question about stem cells and everything. Right. So you can't do it. Now, that doesn't mean people aren't doing it. Because if you're extremely wealthy and can fund it yourself, you can do whatever you want. And as you Mm -hmm. know, in the Northwest, we have many, many quirky billionaires who are happy to experiment on all sorts of weird stuff, right? Hey, hey, don't isolate the Pacific Northwest. We've got quirky no. billionaires everywhere. You're right. And in <laughs> fact, there's a quirky billionaire in California who's doing experimentation today on the, on the Chimera project, which is this idea of merging um, human stem cells with um, cells of a pig and growing human organs inside of a pig's body. Right, I think that's always been the idea. Like, they had those mice that came out of China that had, like, ears growing out of their backs and things like that. Exactly. So it was, the idea was, we'll make life better for humans. Right. Yeah. And that's a great idea. It is a and great so idea. One billionaire, a particular billionaire in my story uh, in Seattle says, mm-hmm. that's a brilliant idea. We're going to save the world. We're not going to, because there's going to be too many people and not enough food in 20 years. Instead of growing more food why don't we just make the human body more efficient at digesting food? So if we could merge the human body, the human digestive system, with the digestive system of a ruminant, like, say, a goat, Mm -hmm. they could eat a lot more different kinds of foods. We can't eat leaves because we don't have enough stomachs to digest them. But a goat does. So he begins an experiment on a private lab that he has financed on Vashon Island, and they start working on making a human-goat hybrid. And it, it works. They that would be it. Dr. Kenneth Langner. Yes. Is the, the fictional He's character. He's the genius behind 
behind it. Now, that's the genius guy who loses Tuck later, kiddo. That's um, right. It's not, what's the name of the, the billionaire who funds it? Uh, his Gus? name is Barry Goff. Goff, that's what it was. Right. I right. love this. I have to say, because everyone out there who's listening who lives here on Vashon, just so you guys know, I mean, Garth did a really good job of sort of like nailing us down in little tiny ways. And I love on this first page where it goes, starts to go into this period of the time in the story, right? Yeah. At the very bottom, it's called um, Airy Farms. It says, yeah. no trespassing, solicitations, fresh eggs. Right. And I just, I just, I crack up every time I see that. No fresh eggs. <laughs> and yeah. I'm like, does that mean they don't want me to like give them my fresh eggs or that they don't sell, they won't offer them to me <laughs> or both? Uh, well, I guess you'd have to really be a Vashon Islander in order to know this. <laughs> well, I'm a Vashon Islander and I don't know, but this island right now, last year, everyone got chickens. They were all worried we we're going to like run out of food for the pandemic. Yeah. We are swimming in <laughs> the, the most delicious chicken eggs on this island right now. No one needs them because they all have their own chickens. It's hilarious. Oh, that's great. Okay. That's great. So, so yes. So you're so de- delving into this deep yeah, subject. It begins. He, he finances this lab. It works, but they can't get the feet out of the equation. They can't get the hoofs out. They, they can make a, a person with a digestive tract of a ruminant, but they have hoofs, and they have really hard foreheads. Mm-hmm. And, but they could kind of pass if they're, they're good, you know? They could put kind of boots on them, maybe, and kind of like make them walk a little bit funny, but they, they can pass as a human because they're pretty much human in every other aspect. But, but they do they, eat. They do eat like a goat. They do eat like a goat, yeah. yeah. Okay. Got yeah. It. So... It goes on, this is going on in the 90s in this laboratory, and finally it gets mothballed. No one's sure why, but suddenly everyone's, all the scientists are told just to pack up and go home. Mm-hmm. And so our, our hero, Dr. Kenneth Langner, says this is very dispiriting for him, and he, he realizes they are planning on euthanizing all these experiments. There are a bunch of little mutant children running around in this laboratory with goat hoofs. Mm-hmm. and they're going to be euthanized. And so rather than that happen, he steals them away, and he takes them into the Cascade Mountains, and he lets them go. Mm-hmm. And he says, I can't help you any more than this. And he, they, they're set free, and they go into the mountains, and they propagate, mm-hmm. and they thrive. And some of them stay in the mountains. Some of them move back toward the city. They move back into city living, um, and they hide in Seattle where any marginalized population might hide in Seattle. Mm-hmm. In the jungle, mm-hmm. in that weird area underneath I-5 where thousands of homeless people have lived and are still living. Um, because here in Seattle, we have a law saying that uh, um, public camping on city property is legal. Mm-hmm. Because we're trying to be very progressive and very, very open-minded to people who don't seem to have a house. So rather than build housing. Yeah, I was going to say, housing, or we're trying, the problem. Yeah, yeah, or we're trying to avoid actually right. resolving the issue. And everybody walks by the jungle and they avert their eyes because they don't want to see, you know, what's going on in there. And that's the perfect place for a band of cloven to blend in and hide and no one bothers them and they do their business and no one seems to care. And well, so that's uh, the setup yeah. of the cloven. Well, I really appreciate you touching upon the homelessness issue because this is one of the things that I actually, you know, always mention at the beginning of the show, which is that um, fiction provides us an opportunity to have conversations that may be a little bit too hard right. to have in in just 
you know, a really upfront way because we're all defensive or we're scared or we're anxious. And then you just place that real world issue into a fictional world and it softens things enough that people can start to think about it. And then hopefully they can pull, if their hearts are changed, if they really gain the empathy or, or whatever, hopefully they right. can pull that back into the real world and we see change. Absolutely right. You, you've got a spot on. And that's, I believe that's about all literature um, and probably all art if we were to really examine it. Right. But the idea that, you know, uh, literature is that last refuge for us to be able to agree to disagree. Mm. Right? Mm. There's no more civil discourse in our society. Everybody gets yelled at. I believe this. I believe everybody should be vaccinated. And then I get yelled at by everyone who says, no, nobody should be vaccinated. Mm-hmm. I believe. I believe... There's too much of this, I be, and it's always fighting. Everyone's always fighting. Yeah. Like it, it's a knee-jerk reaction. Whatever you believe, I believe 180 degrees the opposite. Yeah. But with a book, I can give the same book to two disagreeing people, have them read it, and they could have a totally civil conversation about the topics that are in that book, not realizing how pertinent necessarily they are to their own lives, right? Right, right. Absolutely. So that's kind of why I thought this is the perfect way to tell this story using a, you know, the medium of you can read the cloven as a comic book. It's an adventure story. It's about mm-hmm. a guy who's a mutant who's trying to escape uh, pursuers, who's trying to find himself, trying to find his place in the world, trying to find his people. Mm-hmm. But he's always being pursued by some demons. Somebody's always trying to get him and make him do something else. Well, That's a universal story. And it's his story. Yes, but you did that really good job of what, so, you know, um, people who read know what they like, and people who write have to know what readers like so they can give them what they like, and what we all like is we, we want all of the characters to have a sense of authenticity and to have actual true stakes going on. You know, you can't have, like, someone who's just, you know, black and white, bad guy and there's no reason why he's a bad guy he's just a bad guy i mean the best thing about a bad guy is when you suddenly learn the backstory or you notice that they themselves appear to be a little bit insecure about their badness right (laughs) you know they need to be relatable so what i think you nailed down in a book that probably has less words than the first chapter of most novels. I would say the first half of the first chapter of most novels. There's like very few words in here, really. This is not a book that deals with a lot of stuff because you have big, giant blocks of of script in there. But still, oh my gosh, you know, you've got the... I'm not going to... I'm not going to... Spoil it for anybody, but let's just say, you know, no, you got the mom, and there's a lot of stuff going on with that mom character. And yeah. then you've got, I'm, I'm like sitting here going, okay, I want to know when the little girl is going to come back into the next story because I'm, I'm sure she will. Oh yes, so she will. right, you know, and so I'm just sitting here going, oh my gosh, this is deep and rich, and you know what? Flash fiction exists for the same reason. You don't yeah. have to have, you know, ninety thousand words always to tell a brilliant story. Well, that's interesting that you would say that. Um, I, I think that's absolutely true, and I think that it's a, it, it is a real delineation between, shall we say, short-form and long-form uh, fiction, and I believe that I would put graphic novels, even though some of them may be quite long, into the short-form category. Mm-hmm. Because when you're writing a short story, part of what you're, part of what you're doing is dealing, is you're working with, 
you're depending on working with paradigms and with, um, you know, um, um, what's that other word? Uh, you know, iconic characters, you know. The, archetypes. The, the, when, yeah, archetypes, yeah. Yep. So, that when, so that when you have the, the guy walking into the room with the black cowboy hat on, because you're steeped in our culture, mm-hmm. you say, oh, clearly bad guy, obviously. And then when it turns out he's the good guy, you could say, ah, oh, they sure fooled me. <laughs> it wasn't that hard to fool you, no offense. <laughs> because you went, but, but in short form, we immediately see, we make decisions, on, you know, if you look at, because you know, everyone's talking about Hemingway because of the, the uh, Burns documentary that just was on. Right, and right. You, Everyone you know, I know watched that. Right, right. Yeah. And so, you know, it's like, uh, look, I'm an English major. I write books. I've read pretty much every Hemingway novel out there. I am not steeped in his short stories. So mm. I was rather intrigued by all the short story references. So I started reading some of his early short stories and not realizing how bloody short they were. Mm-hmm. I mean, you talk about someone who's working with archetypes. I mean, he just like boom, there you go. You know, he in, in one in a half a, in one of in one Hemingway sentence, you know everything you need to know about that character. Mm-hmm. Because that's what we do. We bring that to it. So part right. of the fun of right. being a writer is anticipating what the reader is going to bring to the story that you can use to um, leverage your story in the direction you want it to go into. I feel, I, the, way, the way I think about it is, I, mean, I, I feel like I'm working with my reader. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes there's a sense of um, you're creating for your reader. But if you're creating for your reader, then there's really a big separation between you and them, and you're looking at them as just receiver. And I feel like I'm working with my reader, which I think is sort of what you're saying. It's like yeah. I'm anticipating, you know, I don't have to say, this ad nauseum because I know you're going to bring all this because that's what you want to do. You're looking to solve the problem. You want to find the clues. You're an active participant. And once I shifted into that, it really changed how I really literally feel like I am walking step in step with my future readers when I'm creating a scene. It's like, I don't feel like I have to just give it all to them. They're going to show up as well. That's right. Absolutely. Your real readers are predictive. I mean, they're very smart, and they're trying to figure out your, the puzzle. You're giving them a puzzle, and you're holding back some pieces, and they're trying to put the puzzle together as best they can. And that can, you can use that to your advantage in terms of making them look one way, and then you, know, you slip something in the other direction, and they're like, whoa, that was a surprise. Mm-hmm. So yes, absolutely, you're working with um, with your readers' expectations and their preconceptions, and you know the way you set up the story, it's so about let, something. They're going to have some thought about that. What are what are their thoughts about this? So let me ask you the question then: When when you two were collaborating on this story, what was it that you felt that um, maybe local readers, specifically, let's say the ones who were really going to understand some of the references and whatnot, what is it that you might have thought they were going to bring? to their experience? Well, I think that, that, that it's interesting. When I started writing it, um, it was long enough ago. It was like the pre-Trump era. So the, the kind of the, the new cynicism that we've developed toward um, pretty much any news source um, mm. didn't really exist in the early teens. Mm-hmm. You know the ni- you know nineteen uh, twenty eleven twenty ten twenty twelve was less 
cynical, I believe, about... Well, it's all comparative. It's like cynicism, I think, has been growing for sure. But you're yeah. right. I think cynicism is on a big, giant high right now. Yeah, and I think that we, <laughs> we really don't trust a lot of news sources. And I, I wanted to play with that, for instance. I wanted mm-hmm. to definitely have... There's a whole scene in the book where... Right, you've got, uh, what is it, Cairo or Como? I think we did Como. I think I, I think we did Cairo, and I got yeah. yelled at for, by Como. I was being, oh, <laughs> we no. did Cairo. We put Cairo on there, and then uh, we did an inter- Matt and I did an interview for um, uh, a program on Como, and they're like, uh, "Why did you put uh, Cairo on there instead of?" Co- <laughs> oh no! You're like, um, like um, 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 um. how much self interest you guys got? <laughs> um, but the, the idea that 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 um, that I can show you something. I can show you what really happened. I can show you footage of it. I could put you in a scene. There's a scene. What happens with these cloven is that they can they blend, they hide, they're mm-hmm. always contained, they're always worried. In a very real sense, they're very much like it could be a metaphor for almost any number of para, uh, of, of of marginalized populations that we have. Right. You know, um, let's say um, a trans teenager. Yeah, how do you present? How do you tell your story? How do you tell your narrative? You feel very vulnerable mm-hmm. about that. So um, that's how these cloven feel, and and yet they do need to express themselves sometimes. And so they go off on these in the middle of the night. They'll go sort of wilding through parks, sometimes even in downtown Seattle. Just to get, just to be themselves, just to that, be free for a minute, you know. Which is brilliant because Seattle it has been a hotspot of parkour for a very long time. <laughs> I was, I was, well, I was like, yes, he's bringing the parkour the people parkour. to the story, yay! Yeah, the parkour because <laughs> they're they're goat people. They're really good at parkour. They sure are. Wait till you get to book four when we realize that uh, the original cloven were actually uh, invented in France. Well, um, that's that, where parkour was invented. Exactly. <laughs> and and the nickname that they have for them in France is Chèvre. Oh, so, my gosh. Great. Chev, Chev the cheese. <laughs> yes, this is going to be great. So, oh, my God. Just, it's so much fun. People out there, like, seriously, we writers, we really do actually have a lot of fun in between all the agony. <laughs> yeah, in between the agonies. Yeah, in between. The, the little agonies. So uh, there's a whole scene where they're running through the downtown in the middle of the night, and we see it, we witness it, and we feel it, and all that. And then like it cuts to like a television report the next day of the news with some cell phone footage of this happening. Mm-hmm. And rather than saying, "Oh my God, there are naked mutants running through downtown with goat hoofs," they say a bunch of parkour enthusiasts were trying to raise attention about the homeless problem, mm-hmm. dressed up in costumes. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. That makes much more Except sense. Except the boy <laughs> who was working on the computer and turns around and starts watching it, and he's like, I think I know that guy. So I'm waiting for him to show up in the next book, too. Oh, that would be Jake. He, Jake is a, is a reporter for The Stranger. Oh. So we have so many Seattle references in here, and Matt really enjoys getting the visuals right. So he's like, you know, we have, you'll see Volunteer Park, you'll see Seward yeah, Park, did. you'll yes. see the Waterfront Park, you'll see everything. By the way, you mentioned the I-5 corridor, and you've, they call it the jungle there, you know, some, yeah. what's the other word for it, the actual technical term? It's, it's the, you know, it's like you have oh, it anywhere, you have freeways where you have greenery in between the freeways. What's that called? Oh, yeah, median. Those like the medians? Well, I don't know. Anyways, it'll come to me later. But one of the photos, I it was one of the things is you have um, Pigeon Hill, 
or if you come up on the other side of the Duwamish, the big hill that's where yeah. West Seattle starts, there's yeah. also a lot of people up there. And I thought one of your visuals would actually look like it was there where, the, where he gets beat up or the boy is going to beat him up with the baseball bat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, is that, that's, did I nail that right? Yeah, yeah, that's huh? it. That's it. Yay! I mean, the, the, ju- <laughs> the jungle is pretty much from the International District um, on Dearborn, um, south uh, all the way to Georgetown. Yeah. Um, and there's a whole area at that point, because Beacon Hill is on the eastern flank, yeah. um, I-5 is sort of wedged against the hill and creates sort of a natural lean-to, or an artificial lean-to. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then to people, the west, you've got, over the Duwamish, you've got the big hillside that's still all green. There's right. all that so word is on the tip of my tongue. Greenbelt. 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 There you go. Aha. Right, and so, you know, and by the way, the conditions are horrible under there. For anybody oh, yeah. to say, oh, you guys should just go ahead and live underneath the freeway, it's, at least you'll stay dry. It well, is, you're being poisoned. I've been under there. It's deafening. Yeah. I mean, it's so loud under there. It's, I mean, if you had to live like that, I can't mm. even imagine. It's no. so loud. Well, and it's actually expanding. I was in, um, I've been, I don't know, it's, it's, it's. When I, when I moved here from California, my big city of reference was San Francisco. And San Francisco was worse at that point than Seattle is right now, but just barely, just barely, people. You have caught up with the hideousness of San Francisco, FYI. And I moved up here. I came up to visit. My husband had gotten a job, and I came up to visit in September of 1997, right before I got pregnant with my son, who was born the next year. And my experience of walking through Seattle in 1997 in September was to constantly say to my husband, I am so amazed. And he'd be like, what? And I'm like, well, boyfriend at the time. I said, there's no homeless people anywhere. It doesn't smell bad. There's no one under that bridge over there. Oh my gosh, we just drove under a bridge and there's not people camped out under it. That was what I was saying in 97. And I felt like Seattle had done it right. They had, they had prevented the horrors that were taking over, you know, San Francisco and when we moved up here, I was just like, this is so awesome. They're, they're not screwing up. They're going to do it better. I don't huh. feel that way anymore. And I'm really deeply personally wounded and disappointed. I know people who have been homeless in Seattle. It's very personal to me. And just the other day, I was walking through Lincoln Park, and we've got people now who are living in Lincoln Park. So really, I'm sitting around waiting. I'm just looking at everyone. And I'm like, when are you going to actually decide this needs to be resolved? Because once we make the decision, we decided to go to the moon, we got to the moon. We want to go to Mars, we got to Mars. If we decided to solve the issue, I believe we could. So the fact that it hasn't been solved, to me, says we're just basically not dealing with it. Right. Right. And that's what what the Cloven is about. Yeah. The Cloven is about, I mean, all these topics, right? The homelessness. What is homelessness coming from? It's coming from income disparity. Mm-hmm. It's coming from the fact that there are, you know, 2,100 or three, however many now are living in the jungle, like living in tents because they don't, they can't afford housing in Seattle. And over here across the water, you can go across, <laughs> drive across a, a floating bridge mm-hmm. and get to a house that is worth some $66 million, some people say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that just, seems, that just seems somehow wrong. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I think last, no, well, there's actually over, last count, well over 11,000 homeless people in Seattle. Not greater Seattle, but Seattle. 
So, and there's the jungle, but then there's all the tent cities. And yeah, and, right. and I'm just, and it's, it's, it's like I look at what's going on and I feel like it reminds me of what's a Scrooge. I'm sorry, I feel like America is becoming the Britain that we tried to get away from. You know, mm-hmm. the, the way, the reason they shipped off their prisoners to Australia was because they had overcrowded prisons because they locked up all the people who were poor because of the system that they had created. Well, yeah. hello, we have more people in prison per capita than I think any other country in the world. You know, I mean, there's, there's, there's big issues. And so it's sort and of why cool. do you think there's a, why do you think there's such a big push right now to get to Mars? Uh, distraction. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's the new Australia. I'm just saying. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I'm just sitting here thinking, if you can't survive on this planet, which literally makes life so easy, why are we trying to go out to these other environments that are so impossible and, and have this illusion, this weird idea that our salvation will come through being able to survive in those inhospitable environments? If we can't do it here... What makes us think we're going to do it yeah. there? I don't know. Yeah, Anyways. yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, yeah, but all of this is coming up through this really cool graphic novel. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, hopefully, I mean, that's the idea, is that we're, we're dealing with topics that are, that are worth talking about in a way that's entertaining and provocative. It's definitely, we're definitely trying to be provocative. There's no question that we want people who read our book to, to discuss it, to think about it, yeah. and to wonder about it, and to call up a friend about it and say, do you really think that we could? And, you know, by the way, I don't know if you guys know this. You know, when we first invented the clove, it was all kind of like pipe dream stuff. Mm-hmm. Since then, CRISPR, the method for snipping out different aspects of one's DNA. Which, by the way, it, I've only heard the word. I literally have not looked into it. So there may oh my be, God. I don't know CRISPR anything about a, it. Yeah, CRISPR is an acronym for something. I don't even know what it stands for, but it mm-hmm. does stand for, each letter stands for something. But essentially, it's a method um, for using. It, it's a, ironically, it's a it's a very similar method. Now that let's not conflate the whole concepts, but it's a similar method that, that's what than what's being used with the mRNA vaccines for COVID, okay. which is the idea of you go in to uh, DNA and you try and take out the offending code and replace it with code that isn't offending. Sure, people have been gene therapy. Gene therapy, right? Sure. So you, in doing it in uh, there's, there's one thing if you do it like like when they're doing it for a, as a COVID vaccine, you're you're theoretically not altering the 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 actual DNA. You're just altering cell DNA. There's a difference between germline DNA mm-hmm. and other. So what we're talking about with CRISPR is alternating uh, is altering the gene line so that a change would become a permanent change for one's heirs. And they, right, I was going to say they want to do that actually to, I guess, the egg? Or is it after it's fertilized? It can, but done, it can actually be done to either. And in fact, you know what they can uh-huh. do now? This is going to be really surprising. Uh-huh. They can use a skin cell that, uh, from you, and they can make an egg that you don't have. And really? then they can use that same skin cell, and they, they can make some sperm that you don't have. And then they can inseminate that egg with, fertilize that egg with that sperm cell, and they can make grow cells. So theoretically, life is being formed from one parent. Well, you know, it's interesting. I've, I've long believed that there is this phenomenal relationship between um, 
what occurs in the world of uh, science and technology and everything else. It could even be like, why did anyone ever sail around the world? They sailed around the world because prior to doing it, someone dreamed it up and imagined it. So when you look back at the science fiction, right, or you look at Frankenstein, right? I mean, Frankenstein, you know, uh, that was written by Mary Shelley, right? Yeah, yes. Right. Well, she imagined something, and so often, or you look at George Orwell, and you look at that guy who was the nephew of the father of psychoanalysis, who wrote all those propaganda books. Name does not come to me right now, but there's this guy who, like, is the father of propaganda. Well, you know, you write those stories, and then someone reads them, well, then they might copy your idea or be motivated. People had to dream of going to space before we started to do it. So it's interesting that that your story aligns with current modern day scientific advancements or exploration and whatnot, that there's, there's actually um, a link there. Well, I think that that's what the role of the, if, if I may be so bold as to classify myself as an artist, I think that's the role of the artist in our society is to reflect um, you know, what he or she sees is going on in a way that may have some kind of different resonance. Right? If you look at Frankenstein, by the way, which I think is one of the most fabulous books ever written, and Mary Shelley is a brilliant genius mm-hmm. for having written it, but mm-hmm. the, what was intriguing her at the time that she wrote it, I mean, it, got, it, it, was, it was done out of kind of a bet. They were all, she and her husband and all their poet friends were sitting around a table at somebody's grand manor and, and right. for a rainy weekend, and they said, that's all, each one of us is going to write a ghost story, and whoever's is the best, we're going to like, try and get published. Oh, and hers okay. was the best. But you know what was going on at that time? Electricity was just right, right, coming right, right, into right, right, it. Right. And they realized, uh, I can't remember the name of the doctor, but uh, the scientist studied using um, electrical impulses and a frog's leg to yep. make a frog's leg uh, a a dead frog's leg, right? So it's been removed from the frog, so it's right. just the leg, no frog, and they could plug in electrodes and make it move. Yeah. And so that animation from electricity was just being explored when Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein. So she was really at the cutting edge of technology of the day. Mm-hmm. So what, I, what we're doing is the same. We're, we're trying to push the cutting edge of the technology of CRISPR. You know, although it's illegal in many places, Right now, there are two young girls in China, two twins, mm-hmm. who were born just a couple of years ago, um, uh, artificially inseminated, and they had their genes um, altered mm-hmm. um, by a scientist, and they are immune to HIV, theoretically. Interesting. We'll see. Well, that but means she- that we, that assumes that we know how the, in, the HIV virus invades the Body, That's right. that they made the body impervious to that invasion? Well, they, they went in and they said, okay, you know, these chromosomes are responsible. These, these, if you have a defect in this chromosome, you are susceptible to getting HIV. Oh. So if we go in and clip that out and put in a regular chromosome that is mm-hmm. not susceptible, then you'll be okay. And so that's what they did. And they mm-hmm. brought these embryos to fruition. These girls really exist. They're really alive. They were born. They used a surrogate. And as soon as they were born, the the scientist was arrested and put in jail because you can't do that. Oh, well, and I hope they're not considered property. I hope they're not, like, owned, obviously. That's what we're always scared of, right? 
Well, right, but we're always scared that the lab will then own the child and the child will not be a free human, but will be viewed. Yeah. So, right, this is the fodder of stories because it is the reality of what human beings can sometimes do. We, we look right. back on human history. We realize no law actually works 100% of the time and that all sorts of people out there who are excited by what they can possibly accomplish are willing to um, do all sorts of weird, creepy things sometimes in pursuit of that. I mean, if you think about it, though, sickle cell anemia, great example, passed down genetically. People choose not to have children because they're terrified they're going to curse their children with this horrible disease. I am sure it's a completely laudable idea if we could go in and say to this person, we're going to take that gene risk out of your your sperm or your whatever, and we're going right. to, you know. So we all get the potential beautiful value of it. And uh, so, yeah, it's it's the human story goes on. Just to take that example for one second on a little sidebar, yeah. a little little detour here. Yes. Sickle cell anemia in particular, which is near, fail nearly all the time, right? And it's like a horrible disease. It yeah. really is, is bad. You suffer and then you die. Why do people get sickle cell anemia? Well, it turns out that you, you don't, that there's a, uh, a gene in one parent that if you get the altered gene, the sickle cell gene mm-hmm. from one parent, um, it, you don't you have no you don't get sickle cell anemia. You're a carrier uh, then. Yeah. Yeah. But if you get it from both parents, that's when you get sickle cell disease. Right. Now, if you get it only from one parent, you know what you get? What? Immunity from malaria. <gasps> really. Really, and that's why almost everybody who has sickle cell comes out of a certain area of northern Africa and. You know, wherever else it is, you can see there's a map on the Internet you can find that shows a yellow bubble over where most of the cases are reported. Yeah. And those are reported in places that are very high in malarial deaths because there's a lot of mosquitoes who carry malaria. So it's unfortunate that if you get two of those genes, you're in big trouble. If you get zero of those genes, you're probably going to die of malaria. But if you get one of them, you're immune. And Uh. that's it. So if you take away the sickle cell gene... And say, we're gonna, you're not going to die of sickle cell anemia because we're going to get rid of that in anybody's gene. You're also going to lose a lot more people to malaria. The reason this takes place always, almost always, is because of the, the ego. Yeah. It's because we, uh, because of our hubris, because we think that we can, because we think that we should, because we think that we have the right to mm-hmm. control everything and to change everything, not understanding the web of interwoven destinies of all things on in the universe um, mm-hmm. should not be altered because you don't want, you know, a cert- uh, you, you want blue eyes instead of brown eyes. You know, that, that just, it, it's not justifiable. And I will say that oftentimes writers can fall into the exact same trap. Obviously, the stakes aren't as high. But <laughs> what happens, I find, when writers are working on books is that they get, and, and Ian Forster wrote about this, by the way, it's not, uh, I didn't invent this idea. Mm-hmm. Um, he said that, you know, you should take a book away from a writer when they're two-thirds of the way through. Because after that, they're just trying to get to the end. And so they make things happen. So generally what happens mm-hmm. in a story is that it's going great, and then the author wants something to happen, and so 
forces the characters to do something against their will or against their nature, mm-hmm. and then it becomes contrived, because that never would have happened if these characters were substantial people. Oh, I think you're absolutely right. You can definitely read the books where you see that happen, or, you know, suddenly the crocodile jumps out of the freezer in Alaska and kills the bad guy, because right. you just had to kill the bad guy somehow. Right, exactly. Right. Yeah, exactly. no, no, no. Oh, my goodness. Garth, as always, having a conversation with you is just like one of the best ways to spend my time. It's been a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed it. It went by qu- went by quickly, didn't it? <laughs> it did. It did. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And I would like to make sure that people know um, your website, because you said there's a bunch of cool stuff on the website related, actually, to the graphic novel. Yes, I have my website, GarthStein.com. Mm-hmm. Um, you can link to the Cloven-specific site from there, or you can go directly to theclovenproject.com. And that's sort of a, a, a parallel site of content I've added. I've, I've put, there's a whole bunch of news stories up there, and you can go there and, oh. and try and figure out which ones are true and which ones are out of Garth's head. Oh, that's so much fun. <laughs> I'm, oh, my gosh, I bet I'll get it wrong half the time. Yeah, I, I don't know. Some of them are pretty crazy. It's true. And some of the stuff that I can come up with is, is uh, I can slide things. In. There definitely is an article about Vashon Island on, on thecloven.project.com. Okay, so, we, so they're all .com. So we have GarthStein.com and yeah. we have thecloven.project.com. Yeah. And everyone on this island can go play, have fun. And um, thank you very much for caring enough about our local community, the people who are suffering in Seattle, and for um, bringing so many of them to our awareness. Uh, The pleasure is all mine, trust me, and I I hope that people enjoy the book and uh, are ready for Volume 2 when it comes out. Yes, absolutely. Garth, thanks for coming on the show.